0: amen it is true it is true please have a seat as we sing about standing we're going to have a seat uh, we stand in the greatness and the glory of Christ and it is on him and his work that we can stand little ones like Ella Cade, yay. off you go yay. all right uh yay they're excited because they're going to go and hit to hear the word taught not because they get to leave just to make that clear uh yeah Alright, uh, well if you're visiting, uh, let me just say a special welcome to you, my name is Nathan, uh, I'm one of the pastors here, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians and uh, in this Advent season we've just continued right on, so you can deem this our Christmas series, uh, but we've been uh, in the book of Ephesians now since back in September, and we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25, we'll be taking a look at Ephesians 4:25 to 28, So uh, let me pray for us, and we'll take a look at that passage in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank You for the hope of Christ. We thank You for grace, for forgiveness, for healing, for mercy, for life. Lord, thank You that all of the promises are yes in Jesus. And so God, this Christmas season reminds us of that. So bless our time, God. Make us attentive to Your Word. Help us to be allured by the beauty of Christ towards obedience, and not from our own power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, as we will see in in the passage, we'll take a look at this morning, I'm going to call us to not lie, to not steal, to not hurt others in our anger. Three things that I assume all of you already knew before you came in here. Three things that I assume that you all think is a good idea to not do already before you came in here. And so since you all know that you should be honest, you should not hurt others in your anger, you should not steal. I assume that all of you are doing great at this. Of course, we know that's not the case. We shouldn't just pray and go home since we have the information of these ideas and since we value them and think they're good. And so the reality is all of us know these things, we value these things, and yet we still struggle with them from time to time, if not more often. And here's what that shows us right from the very top. That shows us that we are not merely changed by information. It's really important that you know that. We think sometimes I just need some more information from the pastor. And then things will change. But we need more than information. We need information. But we need more than information. This is why, friends, mere religion uh, is not enough. It gives you information. And it tells you to try harder. And guided by guilt, we try. And we often change. Maybe a little bit. If at all. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely information. It's not merely religion. It includes those things, but it is much more than that. And that relieves me from lecturing you on morality for 45 minutes. To try harder to be more honest this week. And it frees me to show you the one that is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us that believe to his glory. It frees me to motivate you not by admonitions of trying harder. It frees me to motivate you by the allure of Jesus Christ and his beauty. He is beautifully and powerfully honest. He is beautifully and powerfully careful with his anger. He is beautifully and powerfully hardworking and charitable with his wealth. And so let's see how he has loved us in these ways so that we then might, having been allured by the beauty of Christ, then go on to do the same and love our neighbors and love our God. And this powerful love that he's working out in us. Ephesians 4.25 Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, before we jump into this passage, I want you to notice just a couple things right out of the gate as we look at that passage. Did you notice that Paul assumes that you are in relationships with one another? So these things can't happen unless you're in relationship with one another. That's something that's oftentimes not emphasized in American Christianity. We have to be part of a community and even be part of the world in which we live. But also, did you notice, Paul assumes that our faith can never said to be private. I can no more make my Christian faith private as I can being a husband or a father or a friend private it's who we are as christians we're we're in christ therefore if it's going to manifest itself everywhere we go our truthfulness our anger it's going to manifest itself everywhere we go it can't be said to be private alone and so with that said we find first off here in verse 25 we need to put away falsehood and put on the truth put on speaking the truth put away falsehood put on speaking the truth you can see where i get there there right in verse 25 Since we see that word, therefore, you guys should know this. We know that Paul is pulling off of something. He's concluding something in light of what he's previously said. There's a reason it's therefore. And what we've seen that he's pulling off of, the reason why he's saying therefore, what he's assuming that we now understand in the letter, is what we looked at last week, verses 17 down to 24, where he said in verse 17, you need to put away living like the rest of the world. You're set apart. You're in Christ Put away living like the rest of the world. And look at verse 23 and 24. That's what comes immediately in front of this. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. And then he says, therefore. since you put on this righteousness. Put away then, therefore, falsehood and speak the truth. Now this should sound familiar to those of you that are familiar with the Bible. Sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? This, of course, is just a reiteration of the ninth of those Ten Commandments to not bear false witness, to speak the truth. Just as we will see in a moment, not stealing reflects the eighth of the Ten Commandments. And as Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, anger that hurts reflects the command to not murder. And so these commands here in this passage and those of the Ten Commandments are timeless because they reflect the character of God that is timeless. Christian morality does not stick its finger up in the air in order to determine what is ethical, as so often the world does. Morality does not shift with the winds of the age. Morality is fixed because the God of morality, the God that made the world for himself, is fixed. And there are certainly those that accuse Christians of picking and choosing which passage of Scripture they want to obey. But friends, that is a poorly considered reality. Christ fulfills the civil and priestly laws of the Old Testament, but the morality of the Old Testament still stands because it reflects the character of God that still stands, that never changes. The Ten Commandments remain because they reflect the character of God that never changes. Therefore, those that He has loved and renewed should reflect His character as well, since we were created, as it says there in verse 24, after His likeness. So therefore, we should put away falsehood. We should put away deceitfulness. Put away lying. Because the God that bought us is not false. He's not deceitful. He does not lie to us. He speaks the truth in love. Therefore, we should then speak the truth in love ourselves. Knowing this, by the way, is not only what he says, not only does it reflect his character, but also it's the good way because God is good. And by the way, don't you love in these passages... How Paul is telling us to put off things and put on things. So helpful. We're often told that by fundamentalists of the Christian camp, they constantly tell us the things that we should not do all the time. And then there are those sort of those of the liberal Christian camp that sort of tell us all the things that we can do. But in fact, we actually find that true Christianity sees both. If we have been born again, we've been given the Spirit of God, then we will reflect His character. We will put away lies and we will put on speaking the truth. Even if it's unpopular. Even if it hurts. So let me let me give us I'm going to give us an alluring picture of Christ that serves as an example for us in these things and maybe as impetus to look out or to work out our salvation. So flip over with me to John chapter eighteen, verse nineteen. John eighteen, nineteen. We get an alluring picture of Christ speaking the truth here. John 18, here's what that says. This is the incident, by the way, after Jesus has been handed over to the high priest. He's standing in front of them. He's being questioned. And it says in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those uh, who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And so here in this passage, we find a a beautiful picture of Christ telling the truth, telling the truth. Jesus isn't calling us, though, we see from this passage to do something that he himself has not done and experienced. He is questioned by a menacing high priest. And his answer is, listen, I didn't teach the Bible in private. I went out into the synagogues, into the streets. I, I taught it to the disciples. Go talk to them. I did it openly. And what did that get him? What did that truth telling get him? A literal slap in the face. And Jesus' response again is, I just told the truth. Why are you hitting me for telling the truth? And so Jesus openly taught who he was. He openly taught why he came. He openly taught about heaven and hell and uh, the need to repent. And he did all of that knowing that it would not only lead him to cultural rejection and public shaming. He also knew that it would lead him to loneliness and eventually to death. Even death on a cross. None of that, though, stopped Jesus from speaking the truth. He never lied. He even says later in chapter 18, verse 37, just a little bit down further than what we read, he says that he came to bear witness to the truth. His whole mission was truthfulness, knowing it would get him rejection, severe rejection. And so to those of us that take his name that have been renewed by the spirit of our minds, Jesus tells us, as I, have sent, as I have been sent, so I send you. If God is true, and it is the truth, Jesus, that saves us, how could we ever be false in any way? How could we ever be deceitful? Why? If our identity is in Christ, and Christ can bear, came to bear witness to the truth, we too, brothers and sisters, must speak the truth to one another and to the world. And we do that, by the way, not from the power of ourselves. Again, we look at the beautiful, alluring beauty of Christ, and that ought to motivate us towards that obedience of speaking the truth. And if all of that is not enough, Paul gives us even more reason why by reminding us our connection as Christians to the church. He says there in verse 25 that we are members one of another. By the way, this is another reminder of church membership. This is where we get this idea from. It's right there in the Scripture. But we are members of one another. So guys, don't lose sight of what Paul has been focusing on. If we, we talk, we think about this in chapter two of Ephesians when we were back there. We look at it most immediately in chapter four. He talked about this oneness. Remember how he's emphasizing that. So if we don't speak the truth and we are deceitful, either out there in the world or in here in the church as the body of Christ, guys, we just harm ourselves. We create possibilities of disunity amongst us. Lying falsehood only hurts us. But the truth heals us. Heals us. And so I know of a church just recently, just this week, that's experiencing the bad part of not obeying these passages. A pastor friend of mine texted me this week. I reached out to him because I knew things were hard. And he responded back to me in the midst of all of this chaos that he's walking through. He's being accused of things that are just not true of him. And he sent a text to me as I asked how I could pray for him and by the way this is a good healthy jesus loving bible believing church i asked him how i could pray for him and he responded back with this text he said pray for the church to trust its elders and specifically me pray that opponents of mine and opponents of unity would be stopped pray that i would not waste my trial with anxiety really anxious not sleeping chest hurting sometimes shaking uncontrollably. Pray that I would humbly walk in confession of what needs to be confessed and freedom from what I don't need to own. Pray I would see the greatness of Jesus. Pray that my kids are protected. I want to keep loving Christ and I want them to love the church. And this is the exact kind of stuff that Paul is warning us against. Promoting falsehood in the life of the church only winds up hurting ourselves. It winds up hurting the pastors that are trying to lead you in the uh, fear and admonition of the Lord. It's sort of like a hand stabbing its own foot. Put away falsehood, brothers and sisters. Speak the truth because we are members of one another as the body of Christ. And if we don't, we just hurt ourselves and we then lie about who God is. Gaze at Jesus, beloved. Gaze at Jesus. Gaze at the courage of Jesus to speak the truth in love, knowing it was going to get him slapped in the face and eventually murdered. Pray for the courage to say what is true and not what is false. Lean into every opportunity to speak the truth, especially if it's unpopular. Don't affirm what is false. Speak the truth in love and speak it with humility. Don't trust yourself to work this out, though, beloved. Trust the power at work within us. That's what Paul's been talking about. According to the power at work within us to work this out. Trust those, trust Christ to work that in you. Have others around you to help you. So listen, if, if I'm preaching this and certain sins are maybe coming to mind about falseness or lying, I would encourage you to turn from that sin and confess it. If you've been lying to a spouse, to a friend, to a family member, to a co-worker or your boss, Put away falsehood. Confess your lies to those offended people. And don't forget to confess that sin to God. And then plead the blood of Christ to forgive you. Ask for forgiveness. And guess what? He promises to forgive you. This is the good news. That's the truth. We're supposed to speak the truth. Here's the truth. When we confess those sins and we plead the blood of Christ, the truth is, is that He will forgive you. 1 John 1.9 makes this clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Don't live lies. According to the power at work within you, beloved, speak the truth in love and put away falsehood. And friend, for you, that is not trusting in Christ for anyone in this room that is not trusting in Christ. I want to love you this morning by putting away any falsehood that you're okay apart from Christ. I want to speak the truth to you. The world may have led you to believe that as long as you are well-intentioned, sincere, or maybe of the Christian tradition, that you're safe. And friend, I want to put away that falsehood. I want to speak the truth to you. Because that's not true. Christ is the way. He's the truth and He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him, He says. That's Jesus' words. Christ died for sin. Christ rose for sin. And friend, if you repent and you trust in Him alone, He will forgive you. He'll forgive you of all of those lies that you may have believed and maybe you've offered. And He will reconcile you to Himself in His love. That is the truth. That is not false. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. He can transform you into being a truth teller in a world that desperately needs truth tellers. And if you'd like, I'd encourage you to Talk to me if you want to have more conversations about that gospel or the way in which to be reconciled to God, to be transformed by His grace. If you have more questions about that, please come and find me after the service. Or maybe talk to the neighbor that brought you. But don't leave here without weighing out the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel that is not based upon our own good works, none of our own good works, but only on the work of Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we put off living like the world by putting off falsehood and speaking the truth. And then secondly, we put off sinful anger and we put on righteous anger. We put off sinful anger and we put on righteous anger. Now, maybe those words there in verse 26 of Ephesians 4, maybe they surprise you. You ever thought about that? It says there in verse 26, be angry. Maybe some of you thought that Christians don't get angry. We're not supposed to get angry. Well, that, of course, is not honest with the human condition. Part of the human condition is to be angry. And so the question is not whether or not we should be angry, but instead the question is, what is it we're getting angry about? And how is it we're dealing with that anger in response? That's what Paul is aiming at here. He understands, he assumes that we will be angry. Be angry, though, he says here, and do not sin. Some of your Bibles may read, in your anger, do not sin. It's another way of reading that. So Paul assumes that we will be angry, and he should, because God gets angry. But God does not sin. God Uh, cannot sin because he is holy, he is righteous, he is just. If he woke up one day and decided to try to be angry and sin, he couldn't do it because he's holy. But we can. Even as adopted sons and daughters of God uh, who are justified in Christ, we are still working out our salvation. We are still working out our sanctification. We are sort of like children that grew up in an abusive home that was adopted by a loving parent. We are children, as it were, of a new parent. We still need to learn how to live out what it's like to live in the graces and the loves of this new parent. But we still have the habits habits of that old parent and their abuse of anger. We're learning how to put those off and put on our new dad and his love. And So here's the thing that we have to understand about our anger. Anger is first off an emotion and emotions are not intrinsically wrong. In fact, we know that they're not wrong since God is full of emotions himself. Emotions are the natural responses to what we love. Emotions are the natural responses to what we love, to what we cherish, to what we treasure. So you tell me what you get angry about. I'll tell you what you love. You tell me the degree to which you get angry. I'll tell you the degree to which you love or treasure that thing you're getting angry about. So to use a trite example. uh, I love the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, And when they lose to the Chicago Cubs, it makes me angry. You see what I love, what I treasure, what I cherish, maybe sometimes too much. And so we've got to get behind the reason why we are angry in order to determine its goodness or wrongfulness. So that means then that there's two kinds of anger, as is uh, assumed here by Paul. There's the righteous anger, the good anger. And then there's the unrighteous anger, the wrong anger that Paul is warning us against. So the righteous anger is an emotion that is thrown upon that which is evil because you love that which is right. Or good. Righteous anger is good. Anger is the emotion that is thrown upon that which is evil because you love or desire to protect that which is good or righteous and unrighteous anger or the wrong kind of anger. The anger again that Paul is warning against here. It's an emotion that is thrown upon that which is good. Or sorry, it's, it's thrown upon that which is good because you love that which is evil. It's the opposite. You throw that unrighteous anger, that emotion upon that which is good because you love something that is evil. Now, to be clear here, we can righteously be angry and yet be unrighteous in our response. We need to be aware of that thing. So but even then, we need to evaluate how our anger and our emotions and our actions are matching up with that which is good. So let me give you some examples of this. So, for instance, if I get angry that a pastor is teaching lies from the Bible, that's a righteous, a good anger because I love and want to protect the truth of God. Now, my, to be clear, my actions need to be in keeping with that righteous anger. But to use an illustration of unrighteous anger, if I get angry about a pastor speaking the truth from the Bible, then that is unrighteous anger because I'm loving or I'm loving or trying to protect that which is evil or wrong. See? So you can be angry at yourself. You can be angry at God. More often, you can be angry at others. Three kinds of ways in which are anger. And that anger can manifest itself in at least two ways. There's a kind of cold anger and hot anger. These are kind of how the actions of the heart come out in anger. Cold anger is seen kind of cold, coldly. It's the silent treatment. It's the withdrawal. It's uh, indifference. It's keeping score. It's sarcasm, gossip, eye-rolling, defensiveness. The hot anger is seen as hot. This is what we probably associate more often with anger. Uh, envy, hate. Attacks, violence, oppression, abuse. And more often, this hot anger is sinful because we can see it manifesting itself in hurting others. Whereas the cold anger is harder to evaluate because it's more hidden. But we need to know, friends, that the more angry we are, the more right we will feel. Which means the more clouded our judgment is going to be in anger. Author Ed Welch says of unrighteous anger, Uh, sinful anger, specializes in indicting others, but is unskilled at self-indictment and love. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about right in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about getting the uh, uh, plank out of your own eye before you get the speck out of the other person's eye. Same idea. See, it's not wrong to be angry, but we need to recognize that the angrier we are, the harder it is to see if our anger is that good kind of anger or the bad kind of anger that Paul here warns us against. So which means if we are sinful in our anger, we're probably going to have a hard time seeing our sin. Which means we're going to need to invite others into our lives to evaluate it and listen to them as they speak the truth to us in love. But this then leads us to the question, how is it we can be angry and not sin as Paul is counseling the church here? Well, let's take a look at another portrait of Christ so as to be allured by the beauty and the love of Christ towards a good reality that pictures a beautiful God. That's what we're trying to do. In each of these cases, I wrestled this week, how is it I can teach them this stuff and not sort of moralize everything, uh, but have them to be have a positive, beautiful picture of Christ so as to be allured by that beauty and walk in that obedience. That's what we're going to do. In. So each of these, we're getting a portrait. We've already seen one. Let's take a look at a second portrait of how Jesus gets angry and does not sin. Mark chapter 3. That's going to be to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark chapter 3. Here we'll get a picture of jesus how he deals with righteous how he gets angry in a righteous in a good way the way in which paul would have us to chapter 3 verse 1 this is another incidence he's just coming out of picking up that grain on the sabbath another incidence of this uh, something doing something on the sabbath so here we go mark chapter 3 verse 1 says again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So did you see there in verse 5? Jesus got angry. Very clear. And so since Christ was tempted in every way and yet was without sin, then we have exhibit A of how anger in and of itself is not sinful. In fact, you may be in sin because you're not angry about something. If we ever think about that. But here, Jesus is angry at the Pharisees. That's the religious teachers. And he was grieved, it said, at their hardness of heart. Isn't that the same thing that we learned about last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18? when he talked about when describing the world, don't walk like the rest of the world who are futile in their thinking due to their hardness of heart. But how is it the Pharisees are futile in their thinking because of their hardness of heart, which causes Jesus to be righteously angry? How is that? Well, here's the answer. This is how we know this is the kind of bad anger. They were using God and his word for themselves. Not for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor. And that then gave rise to Jesus' righteous anger. See, the Pharisees misunderstood the Bible. They were sort of like Ebenezer Scrooge. I've been reading Dickens, so it's all in my mind. But it really is. I thought it was a good description here. The Pharisees were like Ebenezer Scrooge. They were squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching old men. Their view of God and His Word was causing them not to love God by serving their neighbor in need. Their view of God and His Word was causing them to love themselves. By evaluating their ability to perform the law. And feel good about it. And then condemn others that weren't doing the same. In other words they inverted God. And they inverted his word to self. Instead of up towards God. And out towards the good of those in need. And this caused Jesus to be righteously angry. And as well it should. Because it distorted the love of God. And the beauty of God. This is the good example as I've said. And so. The warning for us then is the way that we can be angry and sin is when we distort the beauty of God and the beauty of his word by making it about ourselves to make it to serve ourselves instead of having the word have us to love God and to serve our neighbor in need until we can know if our anger is unrighteous or to say it more simply, we sin in our anger when our anger is motivated by a desire to love ourselves more so than it is to love God and serve the needs of our neighbors. Now, as soon as I say that, I do want to be clear that if someone is hurting you in their sinful anger, you are not wrong. In fact, it would be right to protect yourself. And By the way, if that's you, let me encourage you to come and tell us we're not okay with such behavior. But the point here is to highlight the kinds of anger that are more often manifesting themselves in our daily lives, the more kinds of anger that is more subtle in our lives. So if we were to take a snapshot of all that you've gotten angry about in the month of November, you'd love that exercise, wouldn't you? We would take a snapshot of all that. How many of those instances would line up on the side of righteous anger? And how many of those times would your anger line up on unrighteous anger? And by the way, that includes your drive time. (laughs) Oh, we fail on that one a lot. I know I did this week. Every time. Yeah, repenting a lot this week. Paul says that because you are an adopted son, those of you that are trusting Christ, that because you are an adopted son or daughter of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by His grace, We should not live and love like the rest of the world. We should be angry and not sin. Put away emotions that are driven by the desire of self. And therefore, therefore. Think about those and yes, be willing to be angry about those that are marring the greatness of the glory of God. Those that are harming neighbor and their needs. And did you notice in the text there, it says to put away that anger quickly. Did you catch that? That's what he means. That's what Paul means when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this, of course, is not meant to be read in a literal sense. For if that was the case, our brothers and sisters in Alaska would have a hard time in the winter. They'd be having to get everything done before the winter solstice came upon them. The point here is described in what he says there in the next verse, verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. See, we have to constantly rehearse, beloved, what Paul will go on to explain in Ephesians 6, that we are at war every day against the rulers and authorities of evil. Every day. In this moment, by the way, ruling against us, powerfully trying to get in. They are daily trying to take us down, oftentimes, most often, at the level of our affections and our loves. The evil one will use all of these things to try and cause division. If in our anger we sin, be it against God or others and others, we need to quickly do what is right Uh, Not superficially, but we need to quickly do what is right and necessary to bring about harmony and healing and unity. Because if we don't, the evil one will use that to, to divide us, to divide our hearts, to divide our churches, divide our relationships. And the reason being, undealt with sinful anger settles into bitterness. Settles into bitterness. Bitterness is like a moss on a rock. It's like moss on a rock. It starts slow and takes over the whole thing and it's hard to get off. It colors everything about the rock and underneath that moss is a hard exterior. You show me a bitter person and I'll show you someone that never dealt with or hardly dealt with sinful anger. Bitterness is one of the goals of the evil one to bring about division. And God, on the other hand, His goal is unity. Tons of people are bitter over their interpretation of how God maybe dealt with them in a particular experience of life. Or maybe they're bitter about how a church dealt with them or or something poorly or how someone else dealt with them poorly. Or bitterness is undealt with anger that has resulted from someone not reconciling with their own sinful actions. The point is sinful anger, if it is not dealt with quickly, will fester and go on to color how every how you see everything else. Causing division which results in lovelessness, not peace as God would have us. And this is exactly why Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount that if you find out someone has something against you, go and reconcile with them and then come to the table. Do you see how Jesus is saying the same thing as Paul here? Try to go and get that fixed quickly and then come back. And guys, this is exactly why when we describe who should and shouldn't take of the Lord's Supper, we use that language of unrepentant sin. So if there is unrepentant sin, go and deal with that before coming and feasting on the body and blood of Christ that is celebrating forgiveness. Go and deal with that quick. Now, every day is an opportunity to reconcile and bring peace, to be clear. But at least once a month, because we practice the Lord's Supper once a month, when we take the Lord's Supper, there is one marker you can trust in to hold you accountable to quickly dealing with sinful anger and reconciling insofar as it depends upon you. And so the next time that we will take the Lord's Supper, we always take it the first Sunday of every month, is January the 6th. You can know that's coming. You know that's coming. There's been numerous occasions in years past, not in recent years, by God's grace. I can recall this from our days when my wife and I lived in North Carolina. I can remember there being a couple occasions where there's not so much anger, but there were sort of dispute. And as we were sort of working that out on our way to church that morning, uh, I remember saying, and Andy and I would speak to each other, saying, are we okay? Are we reconciled? Because I don't want to take the Lord's Supper until that's done. But you see what it did? That, that meal caused us to make sure that we were reconciled. So we're together, that we were united, so that that wouldn't fester, and that sinful anger would cause division. We extended forgiveness and grace to each other. But I want to be clear, don't wait for the Lord's Supper to do that. Do it as quickly as you can. Remember that all of your sinful anger, this is key. All of your sinful anger was dealt with in the righteous anger of God in love on his son at the cross. Do not forget that, beloved. God's righteous anger against you and me and our sin was dealt with by grace on his son. He put it on his son at the cross. He took all of our sin. Jesus took all of our sin, God's righteous Anger against our sin was taken by Christ at the cross. And this is exactly why Paul will go on to say in Romans 12, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is mine to repay. It's not ours. So it is not our place to repay wrong, since Christ took God's righteous anger against us on the cross, forgiving us while we were yet enemies. And so, from the power of the gospel, not from the power of ourselves, we should strive to show grace to those that anger us and not seek retribution. And that's exactly why Paul will go on to conclude this portion of the letter there in verse 32. You could slide down there and see it. Be kind to one another. Tender hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And how did he forgive you, beloved? By grace, right? He gave you something you did not deserve. Oftentimes in our sinful anger, we want to give them something that we think they deserve. And they may deserve it. But listen, we didn't deserve the grace that God gave us. And so, give grace to those of whom have angered you. Remember from Romans 2, that wonderful passage. It was the kindness of the Lord that led us to repentance. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth in love. In your anger, do not sin by primarily loving yourself and your comfort and your ways, but instead be angry out of a desire to love and serve God and love and serve the good of your neighbor. That includes your actions as well as your attitudes. Go to Christ and trust his spirit to empower us towards that end, which then leads us to the third and final point that this text teaches us to put off theft, to put on generosity. Put off theft, put on generosity. Take a look at verse 28 there, chapter four, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need see the posture of the christian's heart once again god neighbor the lord doesn't just want us to uh, want the people of the church to not steal he does want that but he wants them to work and to be generous with the blessings that that work brings in because y'all should be ready for this by now god never steals he never takes that which is not his of course that's easy for him since he owns all things but god is a god also that works isn't he I think some people think that heaven will be sort of full of sitting on the beach, but we will be working in heaven because God is a God that works. It's just going to be great all the time. And also God is a God that is always generous, eager and ready to share from his abundance to those of us in need. Therefore, if we have been born again by his love, we will not steal. We will do instead honest work. And we will gladly share with others who are in need because we have been recreated after his likeness. Verse 24. And what he has done is he's done these things. He's been generous in these ways. So here's the alluring picture of Christ on this point. Think about the moment of Jesus feeding the five thousand. There are thousands of people that are hungry for the word and hungry for bread. And he took what was his and he generously provided for them in word and in deed. He wasn't lazy. You say, well, Nathan, it'd be great if I could just pull out miraculously a bunch of bread. But listen, he used the power that was available to him to care for those in need. Because that's what God is like. So it must be for the church. We must use the power that is available to us to care for those in need. We image the greatness of the God that we love when we do honest work, no matter what that work is. When we work hard and from that portion that we receive from our work, we give some of it to those in need. So, brothers and sisters, think about that in this Christmas time. Uh, We live in a very consumeristic and individualistic age. It's constantly uh, encouraging us to spend our money on ourselves, which is not in and of itself wrong, of course. So don't this is not me trying to make you feel guilty because you bought a sweater for yourself this week. It's not what I'm saying, but. Don't, at the same time, feel as though you can walk in, you know, throw a couple bucks in the Salvation Army bucket and then just indulge yourself for the rest of the time. It's not a tax, as it were. This is the orientation of our hearts to love God and serve others that are in need. And when we do that, we picture the greatness of the glory of God. We picture our redemption. And so, friend, if you've stolen something from someone, today is the day of salvation. Go and speak to them. Show that person that you robbed the beauty of Christ by going back to that person that you stole from and return what you took. And if you can't return, then put away falsehood and speak the truth that you did. And tell them not only that you did it, don't only return the thing, do more than that. Tell them why you're doing it. Don't just tell them what you did was wrong. Tell them what you did was wrong because it lied about the generosity of the God of the gospel. And you don't want them to have the wrong picture of Christ. Tell them that when you return that thing that you've stolen. You want to speak the truth of Christ to them in love. And then share the testimony of God's grace to you when you return that thing that you've stolen. Share that testimony of God's grace to you. This will be one of the best gifts you'll give anybody this Christmas season if you do that. And for those of you that are wondering how we as a church uh, do this in, in the sense that we, 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 we don't steal from anybody. But how, do we, how is it we share with those in need? How is it we do this? How are we being generous? Well, uh, I share this just as a way to sort of help us rejoice in God's grace to you and to us uh, and to help us understand ways in which we can participate all the more. So we show the love of Christ to those in need by allocating more than 13 of our uh, church's budget to church planting. Wherever a church is, we believe that uh, whether that's in the States or around the world, there is formed an outpost of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Where, like Jesus, that we saw, people can find spiritual food and and physical bread as well. And so we have partnerships with churches here in the states. Churches like Mercy of Christ Fellowship in Northeast D.C., a very, very, very difficult place with a lot of needs. We're giving them not just money, but we're giving them resources and prayer and people to help them. Of course, we're we're trying to care for the Hispanic community of Washington, D.C. by planning a church there, right in Columbia Heights, with Alejandro, Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia. All kinds of things. I could give you tons of testimonies about how those people have been cared for. And we also support church planting in places like Haiti and Central Asia. In addition to that, we support, on top of that, we support uh, the needy of of Washington, D.C. through our partnership with D.C. 127, where we're trying to care for the foster care system and those that are in it, and those that could be in it even as well as our partnership with the Central Union Mission, which cares for the homeless of our city. But once again, guys, it's important that we work this out. And I want to make something really clear. The biggest way that we do honest work and care for those in need is not a program. It's not a program. It's not a measurable line on our church's budget. It's not a link on our church's website. It's seen in the thousands of ways this church body cares for one another and the community around them. It's seen in you. Giving rides to people, giving rooms for people to stay, clothing, food, good books to read, childcare, discipleship, or any other needs that you guys run into on your way. And Restoration Church, you should know, y'all have done this so well over the years. So well. Uh, If you are not part of that Restoration Church Google Groups, just get on it just to watch needs get met. It's just fun to see you care for one another. And there's so many other things that are happening that we don't see. Uh, We have never missed. Our church has never missed the financial budget. And most importantly, time and time again, you are serving one another and those around you in more ways than I can count or know. Never forget, though, never forget that the best program we have for caring for those in need, showing the love of Christ, never forget it's you. It's you. It's not a program that we can create. It's you. It's the members of this church. The work of the church is not to create programs to facilitate, though we do that from time to time. Our work is to equip you for the work of ministry. Isn't that what we saw back in Ephesians 4? It's to equip you for the work of ministry. Not so that we, all the sort of church leader staff, will do all the work. And by doing that, we reveal that we are as Jesus says we are. We are the light of the world. A city on a hill. And so take heart, beloved. What may be hidden from the eyes of the world is seen by God. You may be caring for all kinds of needs and I don't know about it, nor do I need to know about it. But God sees that and He is pleased as we care for people. Do honest work. Serve those in need. And as we do, as we put away falsehood and we speak the truth to one another, as we, in our anger, don't sin and we reconcile quickly to God and to one another by pleading the blood of Christ to forgive us and show grace as we have been shown grace and not stealing, but instead doing honest work and sharing with those in need. As we do these things, We not only experience the foretaste of heaven, we glorify God and we show the world that earth, we show God on earth that heaven is coming and we are an outpost, an embassy, as it were. And so be motivated, beloved, though, not by trying harder to do these things. Be motivated by him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power of his love at work within us. Look to the beauty of God and let that motivate you towards the good of those around you. To Him, to God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we agree. You are a God that tells the truth. You are a God that is rightfully angry because You are a God of love. you do not sin you are a god that is honest in his work and you are a god that gives generously to those in need our lives are testimonies of this and jesus christ jesus you illustrate this and because of your faithful work jesus on the cross and in the resurrection by your ascension through the power of the spirit at work within us we can from that power go out and illustrate these things Not only as individuals, but as a people. And so may we do it. Have mercy on us where we have failed. And Lord, give us strength to obey for the glory of Your good name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.